podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device. And you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast, big old nostalgia day. Today is Tuesday, the 11th of July. There's actually a bit of sunshine, so my mood is chipper today. As I say, big old nostalgia podcast here. Going to keep walking down memory lane because, frankly, the Premier League is boring the life out of me at the moment because nothing exciting is happening. Arsenal have taken already a week and a half to complete the Declan Rice transfer since they agreed terms or agreed a fee with West Ham, which suggests that they've had to borrow money to cover the upfront cost because the deal is 
a lot more expensive than they wanted it to be, having already paid over the odds for Kai Havertz and potentially paying more than they wanted or definitely paying more than they wanted for Julian Timber. But I do think the Timber deal is, is good value. Um, the Havertz deal is a significant overpay and the Rice deal is a massive overpay. But the bigger thing with the Rice deal is that Arsenal wanted to spread the payments over five years and West Ham insisted that it be paid over two years. So that's likely scuppered some of Arsenal's plans and caused them to have to go and borrow the money to cover it. But, you know, that deal will get done. It's just a shame that by the time it happens, it'll be a bit of a flop in terms of, you know, how much people will care because everybody reacted to it a week and a half ago. Like, everybody's already had their Declan Rice reaction. So, other than Arsenal fans, who'll obviously be very excited to see the player in their kit, everyone else has just sort of moved on. And we're waiting for other things to happen, waiting for City to get their first big signing in, waiting for Chelsea to get their first big signing in. I know City got Kovacic and Chelsea got Jackson, but they were, you know, 25 million and 36 million or whatever it is. They're not big, exciting deals. Everybody wants the big, exciting deals. Liverpool got Zabozlai. That was a big, exciting deal. United haven't got an exciting deal done yet. I know they got Mason Mount done, but that one again dragged on and everybody knew it was going to happen. I think Onana will be one that will get people excited because it's quite easy to watch the footage of him and see how good he is with the ball at his feet. And that will get people hyped up, especially considering De Gea had been fairly below par for his level. For what we expected of him, De Gea has been well below that for the last five years. Um, Newcastle, they brought in Tonali. That was a big, exciting one. Yeah, so we're just waiting for for City, for Chelsea. I mean, Spurs getting Madison, I think, was a, was a very good deal and an exciting deal for people because he was £40 because he had a year left. Otherwise, he would have been a lot more expensive. And that deal happened pretty quick in the end. Who else are we waiting on? Yeah, United would be the other one. But they, they did get Mount in the door. So, you know, that was a, a big money move. It was 55 plus five and add-ons. But I think United United's real exciting one for them and their fans will be whichever striker they land. If it's Rasmus Hoysland, there's a lot of reasons to be excited about him. But there's a lot of reasons to be cautious about that deal as well. He's got one season under his belt and he's going to cost a fortune for a guy with not a huge track record, but he is hugely talented. Hugely talented. Kolo Moani will be overpriced wherever he goes, but as an all-round player, he is very, very good. If you could get him for like 50 million, I think you'd do that. But Eintracht Frankfurt want nearly 100 million for a guy they got in a free last summer. So that might rule him out of a transfer. Although if Spurs lost Kane, I wonder if he's someone they might might visit. And, and the Kane deal is another one that everybody's just sort of waiting on. What is Harry Kane going to do? And I have a piece up on EPLindex.com about Kane. I've had a bunch of pieces over the last uh, few days. I've, I think I've written about 12, 11 or 12 different pieces on EPL Index over the last four or five days. Um, Some aimed to annoy people without question, 
uh, just to get a little bit of reaction, a little bit of bite, because, you know, that's kind of my brand. And then some are just, you know, me giving my opinion. Like, I, I don't think Arsenal have improved their first 11. Um, I think Mount is a poor fit at United. I think Kane has a big choice to make between staying at Spurs, breaking Shearer's record, but punting on the major honours or going to Bayern, winning major honours, potentially even winning a Champions League, and then still having time to come back and maybe break Shearer's record. Like, if he stays, he'll definitely break Shearer's record. The other option, obviously, is he could wait out the year and then leave on a free. I just don't know that Harry Kane will want to do that to Spurs. I think he does care deeply about the club. He's been there since he was a kid. So I don't think he wants to do that. I think he'd rather have it resolved one way or another this summer. There's been some talk that Spurs are going to make him the highest paid player in the league. They're not going to because Erling Haaland earns 850 grand a week or whatever it is. And all of those City players are getting huge amounts and bonuses. But let's be fair. Kane can get the same type of money at Bayern and he will win titles at Bayern. And if, if if Spurs commit all that money to him, how does that affect the rest of what they can do? Like there's a piece on the BBC website that Pastor Coglu has met with him. He's talked to him. He's given him the vision. And Ange will get the best out of Harry Kane. But then every manager's kind of gotten the best out of Harry Kane because look at the record. Kane just fits. He's malleable. He adapts. You play a defensive style of football, you want to counterattack, brilliant. Harry Kane is incredible as an outlet in a counterattack. You can feed him the ball, he'll hold it up, and then he'll slip a teammate in. And then he'll get moving himself and get himself into the box to get on the end of things. You want to play possession-based? Perfect. Harry Kane is outstanding in possession. You need him to be a target man. He's not the tallest guy in the world. He's only 6'1" but he's really really strong and really good in the air. Harry Kane can adapt to whatever you need. So he will fit with Ange. There's no doubts there. But the question is, does he want to end his career without silverware? Now, look, I made this point in the piece on EPL. Silverware is won by team, not by individual. Teams win tournaments. Individuals do not. So to put all that on Kane when he's been let down so badly is not really all that fair. Look at the teams that have been put around him. Other than maybe a two-year spell under Pochettino, where the league was very, very weak, it must be said, Spurs haven't been one of the two or three strongest teams in the league. Kane in his career has been to three finals, two League Cups and a Champions League. Going into each of them, Spurs were a big underdog. Against Chelsea in the League Cup when Chelsea had Mourinho, against Liverpool in the Champions League, and against City in the League Cup. So he's not been put in a real position to win. And that's a failure by the club. That is that is an institutional failure by Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. And they could have no complaints 
if he said to them, look, this is the situation. I want to go to Bayern. And if you don't sell me now, I'm going to leave on a free. I don't think he wants to do that, but he would be fully within his rights to do it. And frankly, it might do Spurs the world of good if they did sell him. Now, they will go backwards in the short term. There's no doubt there. But if you move Kane on, it allows you to reset. You can reset the ambition. You can reset the expectation. You can reset the culture. Now, I'm not saying the culture is bad, but you might just want to change it. You want, might want to make the focus of the group different. It might be a win for Spurs to move Kane on, get that money in, invest that money in at least one exceptional centre-back to play next to Romero and find a good young striker. And see what you have. And spend this first season adapting to what Ange wants. Players are going to have to adapt to slightly different positions. Poro and Adoiji will have to adapt to playing as fullbacks more than more than wingbacks. You've got a new goalkeeper in after a long time with Lloris, so you need to see, is, is he ready? Is he good enough? Is he of the standard you need? You'll have to see if that's the situation. You'll have to try and find the right balance in midfield. You've got to give Kulosevsky and Brian Hill and players like that the opportunity to continue to develop. You've got to give Richarlison a chance to find his form after a very disappointing season last year. And maybe in 12 months, you also then need to say goodbye to Youngman son. And again, get younger, get the expectations on the team more aligned with the capabilities of the team. Because what, when you've got Kane... Harry Kane is the type of player who should be, should be competing for the title. But the rest of the team isn't there. But while Kane is there, there will still be people who think that even finishing fourth would be a little bit disappointing for Spurs because they finished fourth under Conte. And nobody was content. They were fourth under him last season. And nobody was content. And the reason for that is that Kane stands out as a player that should be winning titles because he's got that level of ability. And if he's not doing that, then the expectation, the blame will fall on the manager. But it's not the manager's fault either. It certainly wasn't Conte's fault. It's not going to be Ange's fault. Anyway, that's enough of that. We are going to move on. And we are going to get into the 97-98 Premier League season. So, going down from last season, we had Sunderland, we had Middlesbrough, and we had Nottingham Forest. Coming up, we have Bolton. We've had them recently. We had Barnsley, first time ever playing in the top flight in English football. And Crystal Palace returning to the top flight after a two-year absence. Uh, Stadium-wise, 
Bolton are now playing at the Reebok. So there's a new stadium. Barnsley playing at Oakwell. They still play at Oakwell now. And it is a proper old school football stadium. Even like the, the West stand as is now is a real throwback to the 60s and 70s. The upper tier of it, the upper deck of it is covered. The lower deck is not. And on a cold Yorkshire day, I'd imagine it's a rough enough place to uh, to sit. Now, the East Stand is relatively modern, built in the 90s. Uh, the Norman Rimington Stand, also built in the 90s. And then the North Stand is, I think, the most recent one, uh, single tier behind one of the goals. And um, it's where the away fans sit. So you should actually have a look at some of the pictures of the um, of Oakwell. Have a look at the the corner stand and just see how different that is to what you're used to seeing in modern stadiums. Uh, what else do we have? Who was the third team to come? Did I say? Oh yeah, Crystal Palace. So they're still at Selhurst Park, and that's fine. Um, Manager wise, things are getting fancier. Rude Hullet has left as a manager of Chelsea. That's the word, Chelsea. And he has been, I'm wrong. He didn't leave at the start of the season. He left midway through, didn't he? Um, He did. He left midway through. Forget that for a sec. We'll come back to that. Um, Season starts. Let's just go from there. The season starts. Stuart Pearce had been caretaker manager of Nottingham Forest. He was replaced by Dave Bassett. They'd been relegated. Dave Bassett would take over in the championship. Everton had Dave Watson as a caretaker manager. He was replaced by Howard Kendall, legendary Everton manager returning. Blackburn, they had Tony Parks as a caretaker and coming into the Premier League for the first time. To replace him was Roy Hodgson. Uh, Graham Souness resigned from Southampton and was replaced by Dave Jones. Dave Jones was an interesting one. There was something very strange happened with him. He remained as manager of Southampton until 2000. When he was arrested on charges of child abuse, when the case came to court, the judge reverted a not guilty verdict. The judge recorded a not guilty verdict. Jones later spoke of his bitterness about the handling of the case and claimed it was the cause of his father's death, who died shortly after the allegations became public. I believe. Oh, yeah, here we go. Yes, yeah, so he'd been a care worker in the late 80s at St. George's School in Formby, a home for children with educational and behavioural problems. Crazy. He was out of management for a year after leaving Southampton. And to be fair, like he, he managed Wolves, managed Cardiff for a good while, managed Sheffield Wednesday, 
and was last manager of Hartlepool for a few months. He, he doesn't manage anymore. I don't know what he does with himself these days. But um, he was quite highly regarded when he was at Southampton because Saints always had to operate on a really small budget and he constantly had them doing you know, relatively well. Um, kit manufacturers. Arsenal still with Nike. Villa with Reebok. Reebok also had Liverpool. Nike didn't have anybody other than Arsenal. Uh, Admiral had Barnsley. So they were new. Blackburn had Asics and nobody else was with Asics at that time. Oh, Bolton were with Reebok like Villa and Liverpool. Uh, Umbro, Chelsea, Everton, Manchester United. Lecoq Sportif with... Coventry City, Adidas had Crystal Palace and Newcastle. Crystal Palace, fair play. Uh, Derby County, Puma. Sheffield Wednesday, also Puma, as were Leeds United. Fox Leisure, still with uh, Leicester City. And then Pony with Southampton, Tottenham and West Ham. And Wimbledon were with Lotto. It uh, looks like most of the, no, there's actually quite a few changes. So Arsenal at JVC is a shirt sponsor. Villa had AST. Barnsley had Aura. Blackburn still had CIS. Bolton still had Reebok. Chelsea were sponsored by Autoglass. Coventry City were sponsored by Subaru. TDK were the sponsors of Crystal Palace. Derby also had Puma as front of shirt. Everton had one-to-one, a mobile telephone network. Leeds had Packard Bell. Leicester had Walkers. Liverpool had Carlsberg. United still had Sharp. Newcastle had Newcastle Brown Ale. Southampton and Sheffield Wednesday had Sanderson. Spurs had Hewlett Packard. West Ham did not have a front-of-shirt sponsor. And Wimbledon had Elonex. So, there we go. That's how all the teams were kitted out. Uh, So managerial changes in the season then. David Pleat was sacked as Sheffield Wednesday manager on the 3rd of November. Uh, Peter Shreves was appointed initially the caretaker for a week and a half. And then Ron Atkinson got the job as caretaker until the end of the season. When you appoint someone as caretaker in November until the end of the season, you're kind of punting on the season. Jerry Francis was sacked as manager of Spurs on November the 19th and replaced by Christian Gross. More on him in a minute. Ruud Hullett was sacked as manager of Chelsea in February and replaced by Gianluca Vialli as the third straight player manager that Chelsea had had. Brian Little resigned as manager of Aston Villa and was replaced by John Gregory. Steve Koppel was promoted to director of football uh, by Crystal Palace in March. This is always weird when this happens. It doesn't happen anymore, obviously, but back then this would happen every so often where a manager would get promoted to director of football when the club had a lot of respect for for the guy and didn't want to sack him, but also didn't want him to be the manager anymore. So he was promoted, and Attilio Lombardo, obviously a very fine Italian player, who was at Palace and is now the assistant manager of the Italian national team. 
He was given the job on a caretaker basis. Uh, he quit six weeks later, and Ron Nodes and Ray Lewington um, were given the job on a caretaker basis. And obviously, Ron Nodes has been chairman of a bunch of different clubs over the years. Um, he was chairman at the time, I believe, of Crystal Palace. And Ray Lewington is the Crystal Palace first team coach again. And he's been with Roy Hodgson for quite a while. Um, because Attilio Lombardo did not speak Italian, did not speak English, Thomas Brolin, who had obviously flamed out at Leeds, went to Crystal Palace and was basically there more as an interpreter than an actual player. Um, so the two most interesting ones of these are obviously Viali because he was a legendary player, but Hullet getting sacked. Now, Chelsea were doing pretty well under Hullet. And it's always struck me as strange that he was fired because they'd won the FA Cup the year before. And we'll see what they did in this season, but it's not like they were doing badly. Now, to Viali's credit, he actually did even better than Hullet, but it was Hullet's work that put them in a position to do what Viali did. And one of the things they did is they won the European Cup Winners' Cup that year, the 1998 European Cup Winners' Cup. But that was Hullet's team. And Ruth Hullet has said in interviews he considers that his trophy. Um, but, yeah, I still, to this day, have never seen a good explanation as to why Ruth Hullet was sacked. The other one that was really interesting was Christian Gross. So Christian Gross was manager of Grasshopper Zurich. And to his credit, had done very, very well there. He'd won two league titles. He'd won the Swiss Cup. He arrived at Spurs on the 19th of November and was unveiled to the press. And he didn't speak tremendous English. And he he did what I, th- I think he thought would come across very well. And if he spoke the language, I think it might have come across very well. He was trying to portray himself as a normal guy, like one of the fans. And he pulled out a ticket from the subway or the London Underground. And he said, I got the subway here or the whatever it was. He said, this is the ticket to my dream. And I think it was because his English wasn't great that it came across really strange. And there was still, at that time, a lot of weirdness towards foreign managers. Now, it was different with Hullet and Viali because they'd been legendary players, but Wenger was still looked at as really odd back then because of things that he'd say and things that he'd do. And not many people knew who Christian Gross was. So when he came out with this, he got ridiculed, and frankly, from there, it was all downhill. Uh, He'd only last 10 months of the job. Um, but look, he went went to Basel. He won four more Swiss titles, four Swiss cups. Would go on and win the Saudi Pro League with Al Ali. 
he went to Zamalek and won um, the Saudi Egyptian Super Cup, and he's he's had a good career as a manager. He was last seen at Schalke in a disastrous spell, but barring Spurs, he was a very good manager for a long time. He did well with Grasshopper, with Basel. He did pretty well with Stuttgart. Um, young boys, Alali, Zamalek, Alali again. He's done well where he's been. But this turned out to be a pretty disastrous appointment. And Tottenham were roundly ridiculed. But it was it was because the guy didn't speak great English and he came out with this thing which looked kind of hokey and it was just all very strange. Uh, transfers. Again, I apologise these are not done alphabetically. But here we go. Leeds United, David Hopkin, 4.9 million. Now, these figures are a bit all over the place, so I'm, I'll actually just leave the figures out. Uh, David Hopkin from Crystal Palace. Jimmy Floyd Hassel, Hasselbank from Boa Vista. Uh, Jimmy Floyd obviously would go on and have a very successful career. Alf Inga Haaland, arriving from Nottingham Forest. Martin Hayden, arriving from Rapid Vienna. Davy Robertson, arriving from Rangers. Bruno Ribeiro from Vittoria Setebul. And that is it for them. Um, Sheffield Wednesday brought in Andy Hinchcliffe from Everton. Jim Magilton from Southampton. Gosse Solodsky, I don't remember him, from Hajik Split. Uh, Petter Rudy from Molda. Nicholas Alexanderson from IFK Gothenburg. Mark McKeever from Peterborough. Alan Quinn from Cherry Orchard for 35 grand. Emerson Thome from Benfica. Paolo De Canio from Celtic. Uh, Earl Barrett arrived on a free. Nigel Clough arrived on loan. Bruce Grobelar came in on a free. A lot of recruitment going on at Sheffield Wednesday. Um, Leicester City. Theodorus Zagarakis from PAO, PAOK Salonica. Graham Fenton. Tony Cotty returning to England. Robbie Savage from, from Crew Alexandra. Uh, Ian Andrews from Bournemouth. Peggy Fixed from Lille. Wimbledon signed Mark Kennedy from Liverpool. Michael Hughes from West Ham. Sari Hughes from Luton. And Carl Lieburn from Charlton. Coventry signed... I forgot they signed him. Virarel Moldovan. Um, they brought in a Romanian striker from Grasshoppers who was expected to do great things and I think turned out to be a bit of a, a bit of an arsehole. Uh, Tron Strodfeld, George Boatang. Roland Nielsen was, to be fair, really good there. It was just a shame that he arrived so late in his career. He was 33 already. Uh, George Boatang was a great get. He ended up playing in the Premier League for, um, for quite a while. Uh, let's have a look at Moldovan. What's he doing these days? Uh, so he is currently a manager, though not a working manager. Uh, he played 10 games for Coventry in the league in this season, scored once, uh, also scored once in the 
FA Cup in four games. The FA Cup was against Villa and the league goal was against Crystal Palace. And then he joined Fenerbahce. I'd imagine they lost quite a bit of money on him. Um, leaving leaving um, Coventry that year, Peter Undlove, who I had desperately wanted at Liverpool for years, but he went to Birmingham and it, it didn't work out. So anyway, Manchester United, Henningberg from Blackburn. Teddy Sheringham from Tottenham, Jonathan Greening from York City, and Eric Neveland from Viking. Not big spending from United. Carol Paborski very quietly left for 2.8 million euro, having signed a year earlier, well, a year and a half earlier or so, for like seven, which was a pretty big loss at the time. Uh, Crystal Palace signed Valerian Ishmael, uh, that was a fairly disastrous spell as well. Good defender, but just didn't settle. And obviously he's had some managerial spells in England with Barnsley, West Brom, and I want to say Watford. Yes, he's the Watford manager now. Uh, his third spell managing a team in England. The Barnsley one went well. The West Brom one started well and then fell apart. And he was at Besiktas there for a couple of months and it didn't work. So we'll see how he does at Watford. Um, Neil Emblem arrived from Wolves. Kevin Miller from Watford. Michelle Padovano in from Juve. Everybody was signing Italians and all sorts at the time. Uh, Jamie Smith from Wolves. Sasa Churchic arrived from Villa. I mentioned it didn't go well for him at Villa. Uh, Sasa Church's off-field exploits are well worth uh, looking up. Marcus Bent, a young Marcus Bent, arrived from Brentford this same summer. Herman Horiderson, who, to my knowledge, was the first Icelandic player in the Premier League. Uh, he was a good defender, to be fair. And Paul Warhurst brought in, that was a good window. Uh, bar, well, Ishmael was a disaster, and Padovano didn't really work out, but they signed some good players that year, Palestine. Uh, Newcastle, Gary Speed from Everton, Alessandro Pistoni from Inter, Andreas Anderson from Milan, John Dole Thomason from Heronveen, Des Hamilton from Bradford, Andy Griffin from Stoke, Shay Given from Blackburn, Nicholas Dibas, Dibasas from Olympiacos, uh, Brian Pinas from Feyenoord. A lot of young players arriving in the tune. Bar speed, everyone there is under 23. Um, I remember being really excited by John Dahl Thomason, and then it didn't really work out from at Newcastle because they didn't really see, seem to know how to use him properly. And Alessandro Pistoni, when he was first coming through at Inter, they were saying, like, this guy could be the next Maldini. Um, now, he was obviously never going to be the next Maldini, but he, he didn't even become good. So that wasn't good either. But Shea Given obviously was there for a long time and gave them good service. Uh, Chelsea signed Graham Lasso. They also signed Celestine Babiaro, who was pretty good. So they got their now left back and their long-term left back in one window. They signed Ed DeHoy from Feyenoord. Tari Andre Flo from Bran. 
who was quite the oddity because he was like six seven, a beanpole. This was Peter Crouch before Peter Crouch. Uh, Gus Poyet also arrived from Saragossa and would go on to be one of their best players. Uh, Aston Villa signed Stan Collymore from Liverpool, Simon Grayson from Leicester. Arsenal signed Mark Overmars, which everybody was jealous of because everybody would seen him at Ajax and he was just different class. Absolutely different class. They also brought in Emmanuel Petit. Emmanuel Petit was at Monaco, was leaving Monaco, was going to Spurs, had agreed basically to go to Spurs, was due to go to, had was due for talks with Arsenal, but had pretty much decided he was going to go to Spurs. Had to get from Spurs to Arsenal, asked Alan Sugar for a lend of some money to get a taxi because he had an appointment. Alan Sugar had no idea where he was going, but assumed that the player had just given him his word. And Petit went across North London, met with Wenger, met with David Dean, signed for Arsenal, and Alan Sugar never got his money back. Uh, They also signed Gilles Grimande, who was uh, fairly solid, but not spectacular. Matty Upson, at that point, was really highly regarded as a young centre-back from Luton. Luis Boamorte from Sporting, he would have a good career. Alex Manninger from Grazer AK. Alberto Mendes, I don't remember. But, you know, you look at the likes of Manninger and Boamorte and Overmars and Petit, like, you know, these were... Overmars and Petit were exciting. Overmars particularly, because we all knew who he was. Um, Petit, once you saw him, you knew this is something special. But, you know, the idea of going to Portugal and buying a 19-year-old winger to develop or going to Austria and buying a 20-year-old goalkeeper and paying real money at the time for them just wasn't something that any other club was doing. And this is where Wenger had the advantage in that he had a pretty advanced scouting network around Europe. Um, Ian Pierce moved from Blackburn to West Ham. West Ham also signed Trevor Sinclair, Ayl Berkovic, Andy Impey, Craig Forrest, who was in goal when Ipswich conceded nine to Manchester United, Stephen Bywater from Rochdale. He was he was the next big thing at the time. 16-year-old goalkeeper at Rochdale. West Ham paid a half a million to get him. Unfortunately, didn't didn't develop as he was as he was hoped. Uh, they signed David Unsworth as well. And then sold him back, I think, six months later. Bolton signed Dean Holdsworth from Wimbledon. Robbie Elliott from Newcastle. Mark Fish from Lazio. Neil Cox from Middlesbrough. Mike Whitlow from Newcastle. Peter Beardsley. Sorry, Mike Whitlow from Leicester. Peter Beardsley from Newcastle. Yossi Yaskalainen, who would... is. I would say absolutely, if you're picking an all-time Bolton 11, he's the goalkeeper. Um, and Arnor Gunlogson, who I don't remember. They also brought in John Salako on loan. Barnsley signed Georgie Christoph from Partizan, Ashley Ward from Derby, and Jan Agafjortoft from Sheffield United. Very clear the plan upon promotion was to invest in goals 
Uh, it didn't really work out. Uh, Southampton signed David Hurst from Sheffield Wednesday, John Beresford from Newcastle, Paul Jones from Stockport, solid keeper, Carson Palmer, sorry, Carlton Palmer from Leeds, Kevin Davies from Chesterfield, who would go on and play for Blackburn and be an absolute pain in the arse for everybody to play against, Lee Todd from Stockport, Jason Bowen from Birmingham, Stig Johansson from Bodo Glimt, Kevin Richardson from Coventry. Blackburn signed Martin Darling, who everybody got to know in 92 during the Euros when he played up front and he was involved with Thomas Brolin and that wonderful attack that they had. They signed Stefan Ancho from Hamburg, Callum Davidson from St. Johnston, John Filan from Coventry, and that's it. Um, Tottenham signed Les Ferdinand from Newcastle. Then they signed David Ginola from Newcastle, uh, Jose Dominguez from Sporting, Nicola Berti from Inter. They brought Jurgen Klinsmann back on a loan. Liverpool signed Paul Ince from Inter. They signed Ivan Leonardson from Wimbledon, Danny Murphy from Crew, Carl Heinz Riedler from Borussia Dortmund, Brad Friedel from Columbus Crew. And obviously, he didn't work out from at Liverpool, but he did have a great Premier League career with Blackburn and then Spurs. Uh, Everton signed Don Hutchinson. They signed John Oster from Grimsby. Gareth Farley, Mitch Ward. That's a very uninspiring window by Everton, especially when you're losing speed and Hinchcliffe, was, which was your entire left side and your main point of attack. Derby County signed Lars Bohinen. From Blackburn, Dion Burton from Portsmouth, Jonathan Hunt from Birmingham, and a young Rory DeLapp from Carlisle, who obviously would be best known for his time at Stoke and his long throws. One club I wanted to mention here, who were not in the uh, Premier League this season, had been relegated at the end of the prior season, is Middlesbrough. Now, as we know, Borough had come up. They had big ambition. They, you know, they had Janino, and they had Emerson, and they had Barnby, and they had Ravenelli, and they'd been relegated. And those players left. Janino went to Atletico Madrid. Uh, I can't remember where Ravenelli went. Fabrizio Ravenelli was it Marseille? Yes, he went to Marseille. Um, Emerson, I'm almost certain Emerson went on loan somewhere. I want to say it was Tenerife, but that could be wrong. Was Tenerife, was indeed. Uh, Then it became a permanent deal. Um, Oh, I tell a lie. He... He refused to play in the lower league, uh, went home to Brazil, said he wouldn't come back and stayed there until January when he was sold. I thought he went on loan, but no, he went home. Uh, he went home. Middlesbrough then tried to re-sign him when Tenerife were relegated, but he refused. So, yeah, you'll have that. Uh, anyway, 
So Borough, they go down. They're in the championship. Now, they have a pretty decent team. Um, they have a guy called Hamilton Rickard, who was a very, very good goal scorer. He'd arrived directly from Colombia. Um, they still had Mark Schwarzer. They still had Gianluca Festa. Kinder was decent. Curtis Fleming was decent. But they decided that they weren't just going to do what teams normally do in the championship and just try and, you know, muddle through and get back up. They went and they spent like $5 million to bring in Paul Merson from Arsenal, where he'd been tremendous for years. He'd won two league titles, an FA Cup and a League Cup, and was one of their senior players. Now, at this point, unbeknownst to most people, Merson's life was a mess, and he's talked about this himself, so I'm not, I'm not disparaging him. Middlesbrough signed him. He was phenomenal for them. But they spent like five and a half million or something to get him when they were in the championship. And nobody had ever done that. That was the record buy at the time for a championship club. Um, he was offered more money by Middlesbrough than Arsenal offered him because Arsenal wanted to keep him, but Middlesbrough offered him more money. He was actually offered more at Middlesbrough than Dennis Burkamp was being paid at Arsenal, which is mad. Um, and then midway through the season, they went and they bought Gaza. Gaza was at Rangers. He wanted to leave again. Like Merson, his personal life had gone completely off the rails. Middlesbrough got him. Robson, Robson, I think, thought he could he could fix both Merson and... Because no way Robson didn't know. I think Robson thought he could fix both Merson and Gaza. Because Robson, again, and he's spoken about this, and it's been well documented, Robson was a major part of the drinking culture at Manchester United in the 80s and was like, you know, a, a kind of a, a leading booze hound at the time and had basically given it all up, turned his life around and was, you know, on the straight and narrow completely. Now, he never ventured off to the extent of Gaza with the drinking or Merson with everything else that came along with it, like his, his gambling habit. But Robson was a, was a very serious drinker in the eighties and he cleaned himself up completely. And I think he thought he could do the same with Merson and with Gaza. And as it turned out, unfortunately he was unable to, but I just wanted to highlight Middlesbrough in the championship being incredibly ambitious. Uh, so the table ends with Arsenal, as league champions for the first time in the Premier League era. The Gunners are champions. One point clear of Manchester United. Liverpool finished third. Chelsea fourth. Leeds fifth. Blackburn sixth. And Leicester, sorry, and Villa seventh. Then we get West Ham, Derby, Leicester, Coventry, Southampton, Newcastle, Tottenham Hotspur in 14th. Wimbledon 15th. Sheffield Wednesday, 16th. Now, Newcastle, Spurs, Wimbledon, Sheffield Wednesday all finished on 44 points. Everton finished with 40 points and a minus 15 goal difference. And Bolton went down with 40 points and a minus 20 goal difference. Uh, Barnsley and Crystal Palace were also relegated. Everton stayed up by the absolute skin of their teeth that year. Absolutely blessed. 
Top scorers, Dion Dublin, Michael Owen and Chris Sutton all scored 18. Alan Shearer missed most of the season with injury. Uh, Burkamp, Kevin Gallagher at Blackburn, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, they all got 16. Andy Cole and John Hartson got 15. Darren Huckerby and Paolo Wanchop finish out the top 10. Huckerby with 14, Wanchop with 13. Uh, Assist-wise, Burkamp, Sorry, Beckham was top with 13, Burkham second with 10, Berkovich, Dion Dublin, Steve Guppy, Michael Owen, and Teddy Sheringham all with 10. Giggs, Ginola, and Letissier with 9. Patricks by Dion Dublin, Chris Sutton, Gianluca Vialli got 4 in a 6 0 win over Barnsley, Burkamp, Wright, Berger, Cole, Booth, Zola, Flo, Ferguson, Gallagher, Owen, Sutton, Huckerby, and Jurgen Klinsmann with four in a 6-2 win over Wimbledon. The Gianluca Vialli hat-trick was a perfect hat-trick, left foot, right foot, and a header, and it was the only one that season. Manager of the month, Roy Hodgson in August, Martin O'Neill in September, Ferguson in October, George Graham in November, Hodgson again in December, Kendall in January, Strachan in February, and Wenger in March and April. Arsene Wenger voted manager of the season. Player of the month, Burkamp in both August and September. Wanchop in October. Andy Cole and Kevin Davies shared it in November. McManaman won it in December. Dion Dublin in January. Chris Sutton in February. Alex Manninger in March. And Emmanuel Petit in April. Um, Michael Owen was voted the Premier League Player of the Season. He was also voted Young Player of the Season. Dennis Burkamp was PFA Player of the Year and Football Writers Player of the Year. Your PFA Team of the Year was Nigel Martin in goal, Gary Neville, Gary Pallister, Colin Hendry and Graham Lasso in defence, David Beckham, Nicky Butt, David Batty and Ryan Giggs in midfield, Michael Owen and Dennis Burkamp up front. Now, here's why the PFA awards are a little bit of a nonsense. These awards tended to be the players would get the ballots in January and most of them would just fill them in and send them back because otherwise they might lose them or forget them. So in the PFA team of the year, you have five Manchester United players and yet only one Arsenal player, but Arsenal won the league. How does that make sense? Because the ballots were put in at a time when it looked like United were going to steamroll to the league. Simple as that. Um, 1998 FA Cup final. Arsenal complete the double with a 2-0 win over Newcastle. Goals by Mark Overmars and Nicholas Anelka. Arsenal's team on the day. David Seaman in goal. The legendary defence. Dixon, Keown, Adams and Winterburn. Steve Bold as the other alternative centre-back who could swap in. 
he was on the bench. Uh, in midfield, Ray Parler, Patrick Vieira, Emmanuel Petit, and Mark Overmars. And up front, Nicholas Anelka and Christopher uh, Christopher Ray, because Burkamp was injured. On the bench, you had Manninger, Bold, David Platt. He came on for Christoph Ray after 62 minutes. Giles Grimandi and Ian Wright. So we'd moved to five subs at this point, but Arsenal only making one. Newcastle's team, Shea Given, uh, Pistoni at right back, Stuart Pearce at left back, Dabizaz and Howie in the middle. Warren Barton playing right side of midfield despite being a right back. Rob Lee, David Batty and Gary Speed in, across midfield. Very much parking the bus here. That's the uh, the mandate. Tamuri Ketsbaya and Alan Shearer up front. Shaka Hislop, Steve Watson, Philippe Albert, John Barnes and Andreas Anderson were the subs Watson Barnes and Anderson all came off the bench. And just to back up what I was saying earlier, Alan Shearer played only 17 games in the league that season and only scored two goals. He was very, very hampered by injury. Um, In the League Cup final, Chelsea beat Middlesbrough 2-0. Now, bear in mind, Hullet was sacked in February. This game is in March. So again, he had done a lot of the work to get them there. This game ended nil-nil after 90 minutes and went to extra time. Frank Sinclair scored on 95 minutes and Roberto Di Matteo scored on 107 minutes. And Middlesbrough fans must have been sick of the sight of Roberto Di Matteo because obviously he scored in the FA Cup final against them the previous season. But this was a really big achievement by Borough to get to this final. They beat Liverpool in the semi-final. They lost the first leg at Anfield and then beat them 2-0 up at the Riverside. And again, they were a championship team. Everton's uh, 11, Ed De Hoy, Dan Petrescu, Frank LeBuff, Michael Jubry, and Frank Sinclair. Oh, Graham Lasseau at left-back, so that's your back five. Dimiteo Wise and Newton in midfield. Zola and Hughes up front. Three-man bench for this competition. Hitchcock, Steve Clark, and Tori Andre Flo. Clark and Flo both came on. The Borough team, Schwarzer, Festa, Vickers, Pearson, Kinder, Merson, Musto, Madison, and Andy Towns, and another experienced player they brought in despite being in the championship because they were paying big wages. Uh, Hamilton Rickard and Marco Branca, who was another pricey enough signing um, up front. Mikkel Beck came on for Madison, and Gaza in his first game came on for Rickard on 65 in the hopes of being able to. Uh, lift Borough to a cup, but unfortunately it was not to be. That Arsenal team that won the double is worth is worth looking at here. You had a great, an all-time great goalkeeper in David Seaman, who was towards the end of his career, admittedly, but was still as good as pretty much anybody in the league. Schmeichel was probably a notch above, but Seaman was a great, great keeper. And then you had Alex Manninger, as his backup, who was good enough at that time to step into the team and end up winning a Player of the Month award because he just performed very, very well. If we look at 
how the season went for Arsenal. So they're unbeaten through the first 12, but they're six wins, six draws. And after 12 games, they're second in the league. They've been first at stages, but at this point, they're second in the league. Then they have their blip. And back then, everybody used to talk about their blip. And even managers would reference it. Oh, well, they haven't had their blip yet, so we're just waiting for that. Ferguson was always at this. When a team would be slightly above United, and United might have been through a rough patch, Ferguson would make out, well, they haven't had their rough patch yet. We're well positioned to overtake them. So for Arsenal, they lost four of six. They lost to Derby, they lost to Sheffield Wednesday, they lost to Liverpool, and they lost to Blackburn. But in between... They did beat Manchester United 3-2. Now, coming out of that, they ended up in sixth. They dropped to sixth. They managed to get themselves back in form. They won four of their next sixth. Sorry, four of the next six, but they were still only in fifth place. And that was late January. And I would bet the players had already received their ballots for PFA and had already sent them back in. And Arsenal were fifth, so they weren't really in consideration. And then Arsenal just went on a tear. From the 31st of January, when they beat Southampton 3-0, they beat Chelsea 2-0, they beat Palace 1-0, they draw at West Ham, but then they go on this unbelievable 10-match winning game, winning run. They beat Wimbledon. They go to Old Trafford and they beat United through an Overmars goal. They beat Sheffield Wednesday. They beat Bolton. They beat Newcastle. They beat Blackburn. They hammer Wimbledon. They beat Barnsley. They beat Derby. They beat Everton. And now they're seven points clear and the title's done. Title has been won. Because they lost the last two games. Liverpool taunted them. But it was pretty clear Arsenal were still drunk. Title was over with three games to go because they put together a run of, well, basically 13 wins out of 14 or 15 wins out of 18. Which is a, a genuinely incredible run. But coming out of their blip, quote-unquote, to do that was pretty spectacular. This was Wenger's first great team. And it was a great team. Like I said, you had Seaman in goal, Dixon at right back, Winterburn at left back. They weren't spectacular, but they were always 7 out of 10. Always you had Remy Gard could be a bit of depth there. Matty Upson filled in at left back a couple of times, but was nominally a centre-back. In the middle, you had Adams, Bold and Keown in rotation. Gilles Grimondi also played a bunch of games at centre-back for them. They were really strong. Like Those were experienced veterans who just knew how to win games of football. The midfield is where they really shone, though. You had... Vieira and Petit, who were just so dominant. 
And then David Platt, who was, you know, a really good player at the tail end of his career, more than capable of stepping in and giving you a reliable performance so that you didn't miss a beat when he was in the team. Plus, again, Gilles Grimondi could play in the heart of midfield. Um, Overmars on the left wing was just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Now, Ray Parler was a pretty average grafter, but, you know, he did a job for them and was pretty reliable. Bo Morty played some games. Young player called Stephen Hughes, who was quite good, he played some games across the midfield as well. And in attack, they were just sensational. You had Burkamp and Ian Wright, and then you had Anelka coming off the bench, and then Christoph Ray is the fourth striker. Plus, Bo Morty could play up front as well. Just a really well-balanced squad. Really, really well-balanced squad. And they got to the semi-final of the League Cup. They lost to Chelsea. Uh, having won the first leg, they lost 3-1 away, or it could have been a, a domestic treble for them. Uh, they did go out of the UEFA Cup very early. They lost in the first round to PAOK of Greece. Um, but back then... It was weird back then. Teams didn't focus on Europe nearly as much. English teams anyway. I think the Heisel ban had soured some of the English English teams on European competition. And when they were led back in, like United obviously won the Cup Winners' Cup. No English side won the European Cup until United, or the, the European Cup until United won it in, in 98-99, which is tomorrow. Um, the UEFA Cup hadn't been won by an English club in the 90s. Arsenal had won the Cup Winners' Cup under George Graham and Chelsea would win it this season. So, you know, the, the Cup Winners' Cup was very much the third competition. English clubs won it three times in, I think, an eight-year span, but none won the European Cup or the UEFA Cup. So it wasn't, I don't even know if it was the weren't taking it as seriously, but they didn't put as much focus on it. It wasn't the be all and end all back then. The European Cup for starters and Champions League as it was in the early days didn't have the same type of money. It was only really in probably the late 2000s that the money really exploded in that competition. Now it became vital around the year 2002. It really did become vital that you're in the Champions League because it did make a big difference to the likes of Liverpool, United and Arsenal. And then Chelsea were kind of the one that emerged as the fourth. Um, it did make a big difference so that you could maintain a competitive edge. But the competitive edge was for the Premier League. You were going into Europe to get money so you'd have extra money to spend so that you could try and win the Premier League. And that's it. That is pretty much the 97-98 season. Arsenal winning the double is the the memorable thing about it. And that incredible run they went on where they won 15 of 18, having had that, you know, losing four of six blip, that really was quite a, a, a thing to behold. You had United looking so powerful at that point, looking like they were going to win the title again and looking, to be frank, looking untouchable. Um, under Ferguson, but Wenger very quickly built a team that 
was not just their match, but was able to really take it to them. And United, having been, you know, fairly comfortable atop the league at the turn of the year, stayed top of the league in fairness, but stayed top of the league for a while, but yeah, just weren't able to, uh, weren't able to hold up to the pressure that Arsenal put on them. And through the back half of the season, they did drop some bad points. A defeat to Coventry, losing to Southampton, losing to Leicester, losing to Sheffield Wednesday, draws with Bolton and West Ham. They weren't good results. The defeat at home then to Arsenal was sort of the the death knell for them. Uh, they went out of the FA Cup in the fifth round after a replay, went out of the League Cup to Ipswich, and in the European Cup, they did manage to get to the quarterfinal, but were knocked out by Monaco. We'll leave that there. Uh, we'll pick up tomorrow with the 98-99 season, which, of course, ranks among the greatest seasons ever by any club in the history of the game. Um, now, I'm going to take a break. When we come back, we will just go through the gossip and there's one or two other bits of news, so we'll do that. So I will see you all in a sec. Right, welcome back. So um, Tottenham have completed the signing of Manor Solomon from Shakhtar Donetsk on a five-year contract. Uh, I assume they'll figure something out with Shakhtar over compensation and avoid uh, some big court case. Um, Calvin Phillips said that Pep Guardiola's comments about his weight were hard to take after the World Cup. Ashley Young to join Everton, having agreed a deal. He's set to have a medical today. Uh, Inter are still looking to sign Romelu Lukaku on a permanent deal. They're just going to continue to lowball and lowball and lowball. That is the simple fact of it. And Chelsea are going to get frustrated and end up probably giving in and letting letting him go for far less than they actually want to. Uh, Callum McGregor has signed a new deal with Celtic five years. I, I like, love the player. I like the fact he's gotten a new contract. But five years for a 30-year-old, 30, 30 I, I don't like doing that. Um... Fulham and West Ham are both interested in Taylor Harwood Bellis, according to the BBC. And that's it. So let's do the gossip and get ourselves. Oh, actually, there's one other thing I wanted to do. So all of the new home kits have been released. Actually, you know what? We'll do this tomorrow. We'll do it tomorrow. We're already gone long today. We'll do it tomorrow. I will just do the gossip. Um, Wolves are closing in on re-signing Matt Doherty after his exit from Atletico Madrid. Wolves are very quickly moving themselves into my I-think-you're-going-down group. Uh, West Ham are hoping to land James Ward-Prowse for a fee in the region of £20 but Southampton want closer to £40. Even the the £20 would be too much for me. Cameroon goalkeeper Andre Onana's 43 million move to Manchester United is, an, is at an advanced stage and will be completed this week. Tottenham are confident of signing Mickey van de Veen, who's valued at 25 million. He might be valued at 25 million, but Wolfsburg won 40. Everton have made an inquiry about Tom Heaton. What are Everton doing? What are they doing? 
Manchester United have set an asking price of 50 million for Harry Maguire, who's 30. Number one, crap. Number two, 30. Why would anyone pay that? Nobody's paying that. That is not a real thing. Danny Von de Beek could be on his way out of Manchester United with Nottingham Forest Wolves and Crystal Palace all interested. Palace would be a good move for him. Montpellier's French forward El Yawahi and Juve's Serbian striker Dusan Vlavic are among the attacking targets being considered by Chelsea. Uh, Per Schurz is attracting interest in Liverpool. No, he's not. Leicester are interested in signing Steffi Mavadivi. Mavadidi from Montpellier. Uh, I'm assuming his agent has passed that on to Romano. Uh, Newcastle are trying to sell Alan St. Maximin. And unsurprisingly, um, some Saudi clubs might have interest. And they're doing that to help fund their bid for Harvey Barnes. Uh, Inter Milan are preparing to increase their initial bid for Romelu Lukaku. But Chelsea want 40 million. They're not getting 40 million. Al Halil have informed Manchester City they're ready to pay 60 million for Bernardo Silva. Reese James wants to become the new Chelsea captain despite interest from Real Madrid. Sheffield Wednesday are in talks with Troy Deeney over player coach role. Sergei Milinkovic Savage will join Saudi club Al Halil from Lazio in a transfer worth 34 million. I hate that. I love Sergei Milinkovic Savage. He's deserved a, a big move away from Lazio for about four years now. And I hate that it's to Saudi. Now, he'll look, he'll do great over there and all the rest. And it'll be very easy life for him. But I would have loved to have seen him in the Premier League. Paris Saint-Germain are now leading the race to sign Randall Colomuani. Okay. Um, Luton Town want Blackburn's Belgian goalkeeper Thomas Kaminsky, but have not met their three to four million asking price yet. Manchester United have spoken to Sofian Amrabat, but are not talks are not at an advanced stage. And West Ham have held further talks with Dennis Zakaria, but are still short of an agreement. I, I said I don't think that'd be a particularly good signing for them. I think West Ham run the risk of of absolutely blowing this opportunity if they allow Moyes to have any say in who they buy. And that's it. That's all I've got for today, folks. Thank you, as always. I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.